scripture reading is from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9. If you would turn there, it's page 945 in that blue Bible, Romans 9. So Paul has been laying out in chapters 1, 2, and 3 how there's none righteous, no, not one. Jew, Gentile, churchgoer, non-churchgoer. So there's none righteous, no, not one. And so our only hope, chapter 4 and 5, is being declared by God because of Jesus, justified because of what Jesus has done. Then chapter 6, it impacts the way that we live. Chapter 7, but we still struggle with sin. Chapter 8, but glory to God in the highest, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now Paul moves into chapters 9, 10, and 11, and he is emphasizing one central point, lots of little points, but one central point, that the gospel he preaches is not a gospel of race, R-A-C-E, but a gospel of grace, G-R-A-C-E. It's not a gospel of race, but a gospel of grace. And you'll hear it in these verses. So Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 16. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah, who is God over all Blessed forever. Amen. That'll change your Christology, your theology right there, that one statement. But he moves on. But it is not as though the word of God is failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. That would be the gospel of race. But... Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring, the gospel of grace. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's promise of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written in Malachi chapter 1, which we'll read in a minute, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I, will have, on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human exertion or on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And now we turn over to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 5 as we begin a new series in Mal uh, using Malachi or, or walking through Malachi. Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. It's page 801 in that blue Bible. It's the last Old Testament prophet before you come to Matthew. If that helps you to find it easy. So here's how Malachi begins, Malachi chapter 1. 
the oracle of the word of the Lord, or Yahweh, to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, declares Yahweh? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, Yahweh of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country, the people with whom Yahweh is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is Yahweh beyond the border of Israel. What I've read to you from Romans and from Malachi, it is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, to be honest, your ways sometimes perplex and puzzle us. Therefore, please guide us through Malachi to examine our hearts and lives. Help us to hear your bidding, to embrace it with joy, and to never say to you, you're not allowed, you're uninvited. This we implore through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. About four of you, your ears perked up. Yes, I have preached Malachi. It was Sunday evenings in 2015. So the three or four of you that are here that heard that will remember some of this. But the vast majority of you have never heard this, and so maybe you could call this a retread sermon. But you remember the day when you couldn't afford much, and so you used to buy retreads for your car, right? They work pretty good. They're cheaper, but they work pretty good. Okay. So as I prepared this series, and even as I was going back through it and tweaking it and changing some things, there was a line from a song from a non-Christian gal that kept coming to my mind. But you, you're not allowed, you're uninvited, an unfortunate slight. The singer's name is Alanis Morissette, and her song is Uninvited. You may ask, why would you quote somebody like that in a sermon? Well, much as when Paul quoted pagan philosophers and Jude, in that little short letter of Jude, quoted from apocryphal writings to build communication bridges, sometimes our modern musicians actually hand us wonderful materials to build communication bridges with others. For me, this was one of them. So Morissette, in that song, she is singing about a lover who has gotten way too close to her for comfort. And her words and her sentiments, you're not allowed, you're uninvited. That, those words and that sentiment echo well what, what's happening in Malachi. You see, God loves his people more seriously than they can handle. And so his people squirm in their seats under his gaze, and they are saying something like what Morris said is seen. They're saying this to God in a way, but you, you're not allowed. You're uninvited. And you will quickly notice that Malachi is full of questions. That little four-chapter prophetic writing is full of questions. On one side, God probes and prods his priests and his people with loads of inquiries, but they also turn around and respond back to him with multiple questions, Questions that very often clearly say, but you, you're not allowed, you're uninvited. There's dreariness, there's drudgery, there's downheartedness, there's dispiritedness drooping over the priests and the people like a dense, dank, dark, 
fog that you can't see through. But God will not settle for this because he loves his people, which is what we'll hear in verses 1 through 5. My friends, love, true love, cares deeply, cares seriously, cares persistently. And so no matter, no matter how often the priests and the people will say to God in their own words, you're not allowed, you're uninvited, he will dog their every step like a hound of heaven to bring them around. Therefore, in Malachi, God will expose, actually will expose his own heart. He will expose his own heart in his love for his people. He will expose his own heart through his ambitious world rescue operation. He will expose his own heart of desire for justice and rectitude in the social order and among, in our relationships. And he will expose his heart in the renewal, the renovation, renewal of his people. And much of the work in Malachi will point to Christ either by specific statements or principled patterns. That was the brief overview, and so then here's an outline. You've got it right there in front of you if you've got the sermon notes, and I gave those to you to use. You can just see them very quickly. I won't read them to you, but you can see it. It breaks it down into six parts. It's fairly unimaginative because I put it together, but that's beside the point. But it's something maybe you can use in your Bible, so that way you can cut it out and stick it in there, and that way you'll know where we're headed, and you'll maybe hopefully understand Malachi better. Well, now that we have covered the basic introductory material, let us move on to the matter at hand. God's love. And so notice verse 1 of Malachi. And by the way, you've got to have your Bibles open here or your Bible app so you can follow along. So notice verse 1 is about the man and mission. Man and mission. There's your first point. The oracle of the word of the Lord. That's all caps. Right? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which remember is the translator's code that in the Hebrew, that's God's personal name, Yahweh, or maybe you've heard it in the old German anglicized way, Jehovah. Yahweh or Jehovah. The oracle of the word of Yahweh to Israel by Malachi. The man with the message, his name is Malachi, and if you were Moose, you would say he was Italian, and you would call him Malachi. His name literally means my messenger. And notice what he's given. He's given an oracle. That's the word here in the ESV, the translation, and it's from the Hebrew word masa, or masa, M-A-S-A. That word in the Hebrew actually carries the idea of a burden. So some translations, you'll actually notice, will translate it to the burden of the word of the Lord. And that gets at it too. A burden, a notion of weight, of substantiality and responsibility. In other words, my friends, it's not a task taken lightly. Malachi's mission then is to bear the weighty load of the word of the Lord. And he is to bear it to Israel. Though carrying God's message can have some positive, lots of positive sides to it, there is a heaviness to it as well. Such as when Charles Spurgeon, that great Baptist preacher, was talking about Martin Luther once, and this is how he's describing what Luther was doing. He said, quote, to preach the word, the whole truth, to preach the whole truth is an awful charge. You and I, who are ambassadors of God, must not trifle 
but we must tremble at God's Word. We must not trifle, but we must tremble at God's Word. God's Word is filled with both the bitter and the sweet. It is filled with guilt and grace. It is filled with death and life. It's good news for some, which is also bad news for others. For example, in Ezekiel, and also you'll see this in Revelation with John, both Ezekiel and John, an Old Testament prophet and the New Testament prophet, are told to eat the Word. They're handed a scroll with the Word of God, and they eat that scroll, and both of them find that it was sweet to their taste buds, but it was sour in their stomachs. There's good, there's sweet and sour in God's Word. And so, my friends, no pastor, no preacher, no prophet who loves their people, really enjoys pointing out his people's sins or warning them of the doom to come. And yet all, all of the threats and all of the warnings and all of the challenges and all of the encouragements and all the, the promises are for upbuilding to aid each and every one of us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God and the prophet Malachi both wanted a righteous community. God and Malachi both wanted a pure and devoted priesthood. God and Malachi both wanted happy homes in God, with God's people. God and Malachi both wanted God-fearing children. God and Malachi both wanted a people who were characterized by truth, integrity, fraternity, generosity, gratitude, fidelity, love, and hope. And so not only was that true of Malachi, but it is really true of every Christian pastor who genuinely cares. The temptation, and it's been a temptation since before Jesus came. The temptation for the pastor or the prophet is to tap dance or do si do. Now that's a square dance and talk there, okay? Does tap dance or to do si do away from and around the stiff and the stern parts of God's message and only to present the positive and the pleasing? Malachi knows he is tasked with a solemn oracle. And he will remain faithful to his God-given commission, as will the faithful, God-loving, church-cherishing minister. So having seen the man and his mission, we turn then to the main message. And that's verse 2 in the first part of verse 3. God, God's first words. God's first words, four of them. What are they? I have loved you. If you've ever read Malachi, that should so shock the socks off of you. Because it's a stiff prophecy, a stiff book. And the very first thing he wants the people to know before he gets down and dirty with them is, I have loved you. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? It's not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau, I have hated Notice that the Lord begins his stiff and stern message right here, and it is a surprise. I have loved you. First off, notice the odd response of God's people. How do they respond to that message? What? I mean, that's it in my paraphrase, right? It's like that, right? What? How have you loved us? Right? It's, a, it's almost a snideness in that response. 
maybe an incredulity in their regard. This disbelief, this distrust, this disparagement will be the consistent reaction of God's people all the way through this weighty oral. But secondly, notice what God says. God says, I have loved you. It's that, and even in the verb tense in the Hebrew, it's not, I once loved you, but no longer. It's never that. When he says, I have loved you, he's not saying, I loved you once, but I don't love you anymore. Instead, it's more of the sense of, I loved you, and I love you now. I have loved you, and I love you now, kind of a assurance. And my friends, right there, those first four words means that everything you read in Malachi, everything he's about to write is colored with this point. I have loved you. Every part of the oracle will need to be heard from that perspective. I have loved you. I have loved you will color every slice of this prophecy, this writing, including all of the severe and the somber sections. I have loved you. It's clearly behind the sudden shift of thought that you will see when you get to chapter 3. If you have your Bibles open, just look at chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. It's a stunning statement right in the middle of the letter. And it's probably the centerpiece of the whole letter, of the whole oracle. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I, the Lord, do not change. What does that mean? I have loved you. The reason why you're not burnt toast, swept up in a dustpan, and thrown into the trash can is because I have loved you and I do not change. Hallelujah! That's the God you've come to worship. I have loved you as honoring and persnickety as you can be. I have loved you. It's kind of a sense in this whole letter. And it evokes. It brings about an invitation, and that's in chapter 3, verse 7. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord. My friends, what God is saying there in chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, goes clear back to the early days. For God's election, his selection, his choosing of his people is love-filled. We read it before the confession of sin. Do you remember that in Deuteronomy 7? We read before the confession of sin, in essence, what God says, look, I didn't choose you because you were cool. I didn't choose you because you were hip. I didn't choose you because you were a bigger superpower militarily. You had great wealth. I didn't choose you because you smelled good and looked good. What does he say? I chose you because I chose you. I chose you because I loved you. Love filled the election. And that, my friends, is what you heard when we were over there in Romans chapter 9. That's why Paul quotes this passage there in chapter 9. He's talking about election. It is love-filled election. It is love-filled choosing by God. And it's what's behind the bold assertion you heard Scott read in the call to worship from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. God has loved us and called us with a holy call. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. 
which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He's loved you and called you not because of what you've done and who you are, but by his because of his own works and purpose and grace. That's the point here. And so the main message of Malachi is all about God's love. You put it in the words of the Puritan theologian John Owen, and I think you have these. I hope you have these in your sermon. Here's how John opens it. I think he captures it nicely. He loves life, grace, and holiness into us. He loves us also into covenant. Loves us into heaven. Isn't that exciting? That's the point of Mount. He's getting at it. Well, if that's the case, then, my friends, it's a travesty of grace and a mockery of God's love. When his people puff out their chests and shove their thumbs under their virtual suspenders and they strut around like a cock on the walk, crowing about their being elected and thumbing their noses at those poor saps out there, snootily and snidely swaggering around with sanctimonious bravado. I'm elect! Woohoo! You... No way. You got too many earrings. You got too many tattoos. You got holes in your jeans. There's no way. When you smoke that stuff, no way. What a travesty of the grace of God, the love of God. And as people do that kind of stuff, my friend, the election is that song we sang right after the confession of sin and assurance of pardon. It's that amazing love, how can it be, that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Seriously? Do you know who I am? Yes, he said. Why would you? Don't ask. I do. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That kind of joy, that humble dance, that longs to see others joyfully dancing and swimming in the loving pleasure of God. Even those people you didn't want to vote for. Even those people you wouldn't want as your neighbors. Longing for them to also come in here and swim in the loving pleasure of God. And so, since none of us knows who the elect are, I love J.I. Packer's concise theology, and he has this in his concise theology. He says, look, this is the family secret. None of us knows who the elect are, and none of us knows who the reprobate are. That's God's business. He didn't say business, business that's me, right? He says, so we look at every person we see as potentially elect, and we tell them the gospel. I think that's exactly right. None of us knows who the elect is. And so our hearts ought to be yearning to tell others the good news of God's Son, that His chosen ones then will come to embrace Christ in living faith. Because that's the normal, and that's the ordinary way that God has planned for His election, His elect, excuse me, to come to faith, is through the ordinary, boring, simple means of the gospel being told to them. 
Anybody in here become a believer and never heard the gospel offered by, say, a Sunday school teacher? Now, you, somebody told you. Am I right? Give me a yes. Yeah, I see some heads. Somebody told you, thank God. And it's the same with us. So the person that sits back and says, well, uh, God's got his elect, and I don't need to go tell anybody because he'll save them. Hogwash and poppycock. That's paganism. That's outright anti-Christianity. And it's anti-Calvinist. For you reformed folks. He has set up the means to the end. To the ends. And that is us to tell others. We should want to. So what do we do here then in this verse as we look at all this hateful language, this hate language that's scattered here in this paragraph, like so many glass shards broken on the ground that you'll cut your foot on if you're not careful. This, but Esau, I hated stuff. Well, it's unpacked in the rest of verse 3, 4, and 5. So it's made meaningful there. Here's our third point. First of all, I want you to see that this love-hate language shows us something about God. It shows us that God's love is a distinguishing love. God's love is a distinguishing love. So is yours. I mean, I love my neighbors who live in the cul-de-sac with me. I don't agree with the folks that live across the street or down the road, but I love them. I love them enough that their property is safe. You know what I mean? I'm not going to go steal from them. I love them enough that when there's some criminal activity going on in our neighborhood, I'll actually go out and just, on my own, just go and see if everybody's house is okay at 11 o'clock at night. I'm just that kind of guy. But I love them. But I love my wife more. I love my boys more. Where's the outside? I'm going to sit in here somewhere. I love my sons more. That's a distinguishing love. Do you get it? And it's natural. You'd say, oh, that's fitting. Well, God's love is a distinguishing love. I, I think the way that Augustine puts it in his writing he wrote on the Gospel of John gets it. And this should be the second quotation. God loves all things that he has made. And amongst them, rational creatures more. And of these, of these rational creatures, especially those who are members of his only begotten Son himself. And so God's love is a distinguishing love. But further, I want you to notice how God hates. It's actually unpacked or, de or developed in the rest of verse 3 and 4. Notice what he says. Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. I have laid waste. You can't stop with Esau, I have hated, and then be scandalized. You've got to go over with the rest of the verse. Esau, I have hated. I have laid waste. His hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are scattered, but we will... We will make Edom great again. Oh, wait, they didn't say that. Sorry. We will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, They may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Notice that the hate language of verse, the first part of verse 3 is made meaningful in the rest of verse 3 into verse 4. Out of love for his chosen people, verse 2 in the first part of verse 3, God is going to withhold from Edom success and prosperity, the rest of verse 3 and verse 4. What he's doing there, he tells you what he's doing, he is humbling Israel's geographically closest enemies. 
He is humbling. Here's how he hates Esau. He is humbling Israel's geographically closest enemy by tearing down their strongholds and their military outposts. Why would he do that? Because that's what they want to use and what they've used in the past to launch their assaults and their attacks on the weak and beleaguered people of God. Because I love my people, I'm going to stop their enemies from attacking them. I've hated Esau. Jacob, I've loved Esau. I've hated him. The hate language is not some fickle malevolence or malice or meanness. It's about, I love you, my chosen people, so much that I am stopping them from succeeding in their desire for vengeance and vindictiveness. It comes up in our Westminster Shore Catechism when we're praying for God's kingdom to come, that he would subdue us and all his and our enemies. If you need to know more about some of the bitter background, you can slide over and read the short letter of Obadiah. It's like 25 verses. And if you really want to get more into it, go to Sermon Audio. Look me up, and I preached a two-part sermon on it back in 2015 on Obadiah. And so verse 5 makes this even more meaningful when Yahweh says, in effect, as I do these things, you will come to understand that I am not a namby-pamby territorial God, like their gods. I'm not a God of scanty, skimpy, slender love, like their gods. That's what he says. Your own eyes shall see it, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And that point will get filled out more when you get down to verse 11 and verse 14 and you get over to chapter 3, verse 12, where it will go in a completely astounding direction. But for now, I want you to see that this is all about love. And especially as you think about verse 5, it's all about love that sometimes works and very often works behind the scenes. Love that often works beyond the borders and the boundaries. Love that often moves outside of our periphery. The love of God that is actually working for us and we don't see it. Great is the Lord beyond the walls of the church. I hope somebody's picking up what I'm putting down here. Notice it's about a love that is described very well in the Westminster Confession of Faith. For those of you who are writing notes, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, paragraph 8, 5, Eight, ready? Five, eight. There you go. That's where it is. Where the writers are talking about providence, and here's what they say. Listen. As the providence of God does in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner, it takes care of his church and disposes all things to the good thereof. Great is the Lord works beyond the borders of his people. Disposes all things to the good. Lots of things we can say about that, but let that sit there. Percolate. This whole thing is about God's love. Even the hate language is about God's love. And so as God's people are starting to say to him, you heard it back up in verse 2, they're already starting to say to him, but you, you're not allowed, you're uninvited. 
Notice that this is the God they are unfighting. Did you notice that? This is the God they're pushing away. It's this God, this God that makes them uncomfortable because he is a God who loves this deeply and he's a God who loves this decidedly. And they don't like it and they're pushing him away. It's in the face of love and God's plenteousness that we have been sinning since Genesis 3. Do you get it? We do not sin because of God's privations. We sin in the face of His love and goodness, which is what makes our sins so horrible and heinous. And that's what's going on here. And that's the way it is with us when we turn our own backs on to God and we head off in our own directions. We're saying to God, but you, you're not allowed. You're uninvited. I want to live my life my way. Get out. That's what we're doing when we say that. And it's to a God of deep love for His people. So let me end with this. Do you know this God? You will find Him solely and singularly in Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 4, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He sent His own Son to satisfy, to take care of, to fulfill the justice that was looming over us in doom. He took it upon Himself for us. That's love. It's found in Jesus. So if you are ready to know this God, John goes on to say in chapter 4, 1 John 4, verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He is God. If you are ready to know this God, come to Jesus, confess Him. Jesus, You are the Son of God. You are the very love of God in the flesh and I embrace You because I have been turning away for so long. You will find your sins forgiven. You will find this God who loves deeply. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord God, that you do love. You love before we ever loved you. You love when we had turned our backs to you. You displayed your love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You love. And you put hands and feet and flesh and bones and a a human being onto that love. You displayed him for us, Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us for the oftentimes that we sin. Especially when we see that what we've done is we have sinned in the face of love. Forgive us. We pray for any who are here or who will be watching, who are listening, who have never come to know you, that you would grab them now and draw them to you. And they would come to embrace you. Your Son, Jesus Christ, you come to enjoy you like never before. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.